Well, welcome everybody. Um, hope you guys are doing well. I uh, hope you guys had a great Christmas. I know I'm sure a lot of people are <laughs> still recovering from time with family and friends as much as you love it. I know sometimes you're just ready for it to, to move on, right? Um, but uh, it's been a wonderful week uh, in my household and just a blessing to be with family and loved ones. And uh, it was truly a blessing to be a part of Christmas Eve service here. I just want to thank everybody who was a part of helping with that and just a part of being here in the worship and studying of God's Word together. Um, it was it's a blessing to see and be a part of something like that. Uh, but we uh, we did take a pause for, for three weeks uh, through our series of the Minor Prophets to study the message of Christmas. And now we're going to jump back in to the book of Amos. Um, and uh, it's the guy that's famous for making cookies. And we're going to look at his word and... Uh, but before we do that, because we are in chapter 8 of 9 chapters, uh, it's probably good to get a refresher course. Uh, and don't worry, I'm not going through all 7 chapters beforehand. <laughs> don't have to worry about that, but we are going to just kind of get a reminder, a refresher of who Amos is and what his calling as a prophet was. In chapter 1, God calls Amos up out of his occupation to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. At the time, he was a simple sh- uh, sheep breeder. Some passages will say he was a shepherd, same thing, and also a fig picker from the area of Tekoa, which was a very rural and uh, very uh, dry desert area. He was a man of simplicity. And if you recall in chapter 7, as he's giving his prophetic message to the nation of Israel, um, a priest comes in uh, by the name of Amaziah. And Amaziah was a poor excuse for her priest in the town of Bethel. Bethel was known for its uh, pagan worship. It was not a place where they worshipped God in their temples, but um, false gods. And he comes by and he speaks to Amos and tells him he needs to leave the area. That if he's going to speak this message, go back to the small town of Tekoa and preach to the people there. We don't want to hear your words. And... Um, and so Amos, or, uh, excuse me, Amos explains to Amaziah that he's not a prophet, that he didn't come from a line of prophets, he didn't study God's word for years on end, but that he was called up out of his occupation to preach the words that God had given him. He didn't necessarily want to do it, but he was faithful uh, and obedient to God who had called him to do that. And if you remember, uh, Amaziah had uh, some very tough uh, judgment that came before him for telling a man of the Lord to stop speaking the words of the Lord, uh, to dis- obey God himself, and so there was um, some judgment upon him and his family. But Amos was obedient to give the prophetic message of impending doom and judgment upon a spiritually sleeping nation. On two occasions, he intercedes on behalf of the nation of Israel, and we see that the Lord relents from the judgment. The nation of Israel was living in deep sin at the time. They were involved in pagan rituals and idol worship. They took advantage of the poor and the destitute. They sold their own people into slavery to make pennies on the dollar. They swindled people in their business dealings. They ignored the warnings of a God they no longer feared. And while they went, still went through the motions of the festivals and the offerings and uh, the Sabbath... Uh, It was only for appearance. Their hearts were not with God. And so now we're going to turn to chapter 8 today. uh, And we'll see Israel's doom is now certain. And it's very near at hand. So Amos chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. We're going to read 
this in sections today. We'll go through the entire uh, chapter this morning. But before we do that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask that your spirit would be with us today, that you would reveal your word in equal parts truth and love through me, Lord. Uh, again, I thank you for the opportunity and the calling that you've placed on my life to, to preach the message, Father. And I just pray that it would stir in our hearts a desire for you. In your name we pray. Amen. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Very good, Amos. Pass that test. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Now, if you have a good memory, you may recall a few weeks ago in Amos chapter 7 that he was also given a vision by the Lord. And it happens very similarly. He gives, God gives him a vision. He asks him what he sees. He responds. And then God reveals what that vision means. In chapter 7, he was given the vision of a plumb line. A plumb line was used to see if walls and buildings were uh, correctly built up, if they were level to the ground or perpendicular to the ground. Um, and what it showed was that Israel was not in line with God. That In fact, they were so bad they had to be torn down uh, and rebuilt. In this chapter here, in chapter 8, we see he's given a vision of summer fruit in a basket. It's pretty interesting, uh, kind of kind of these random visions he's given. Um, but it made me think, you know, has, has God ever given you a vision or an instruction in your life in any way? And you're like, what does this even mean? You know, he tells you or calls you to do something that just seems so out of the ordinary. Uh, it makes you wonder, that's kind of odd, you know, I wonder what this is all about. Uh, but this vision of Amos, it, it kind of reminds me similarly to a vision in Acts chapter 10 that the Apostle Peter receives from the Lord. And in that vision, he receives this vision of a this massive blanket, and there's all these animals upon it, and the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. It's kind of a bizarre uh, vision, and it happens three times in a row, the same vision. And, uh, and, and upon this blanket is both clean and unclean animals, according to the Jewish law. And so what this means is that some of these were not to be touched or eaten according to the law, and this vision, again, happens three times in a row. And then soon after he gets this vision, Peter gets a knock at his door. And uh, it's all this is while he's still kind of pondering and trying to figure out what this vision means. And these three men request that he comes, up with, that he comes with them to meet a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. And of course, God says, go with him. Trust me. Don't question it. Just go. And so Peter goes with them the next morning to the house of Cornelius. And he begins to minister and preach to Cornelius and his family, uh, who is a Gentile Roman soldier. And it tells us in Scripture that his entire family um, are all saved. And then it says that the Holy Spirit falls upon these Gentiles. And now it's in that moment that Peter understands what his vision means. Okay, there's clean, unclean animals upon the same blanket. God has given me the okay that these are all the equal now. And so... What it tells us um, is that the unclean animals were the Gentiles in his vision. God was explaining that salvation is for all people, including what was once deemed common and unclean by the Jewish people. And God will work in this way. He will give us a vision of something or a calling somewhere, and we may not understand it in its full context at the time or in its full depth at the time, and he calls us to be obedient and to trust in those moments. Oftentimes it will require us to wait upon the Lord. And so if you receive a vision or a calling from the Lord, or you feel like he's speaking to you to do something in some way, and it just seems out of the ordinary, you don't understand it, that's okay. You should be encouraged to know that it happens often. Um, and so... 
Don't be discouraged. Continue to trust in him. And in the proper time, he will further reveal what he needs to reveal to you. But here in Amos chapter 8, Amos is a little bit luckier in that regard. It's, it's revealed to him immediately what it means. Um, and the Lord asks Amos what he sees. And again, Amos replies, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord explains the meaning of this vision. He says, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them in verse 2. Now the basket of summer fruit represents a nation that is ripe for the harvest of the Lord's judgment. It's also very important to understand uh, how Hebrew literature worked in this day uh, to get a full grasp of the text here. Um, here the word for summer fruit in ancient Hebrew is kayetz. And it sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for end, which is ketz. Now this wordplay of similar sounds was very common in Hebrew literature and it was a tool that they used to explain a deeper meaning through the common sounding words. It's not, a, it's not a literature tool that we're really used to using here in America or in the English language. You don't use similar words that sound alike uh, to have multiple meanings, but it was very common in Hebrew literature to do this. And so the summer fruits represented the end of a disobedient nation. It represents the end of the Lord's patience and long-suffering attitude towards the rebellion of Israel. And what we see in verse 3 is the beginning of an explanation of this approaching day of judgment upon the nation of Israel. He says that the songs of the temple will become wailings, and the temple um, at this time has been defiled for some time now with the worship of pagan gods. It's no longer a place where they worship the Lord, Yahweh. They worship all sorts of pagan gods. And so the result of that is death to the people there. And so much so, it says that no sound will come forth from the temples, only silence. And in the following portion, verses 4 through 6, we're going to see a listing of some of Israel's sins for which they'll be held accountable. And so it's as interesting, and it gives us a further um, look into the life of Israel during this time. And we don't just see the judgment upon them, we actually see why there was judgment upon the people. And so beginning in verse 4 now, it says, Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. So what we see in the heart of these people primarily is selfishness, Pride and greed. The root of their sin is the same that has followed man since the fall in the Garden of Eden. And in this passage specifically, it's speaking to the rich and the powerful who are oppressing the lower class citizens of Israel. And so rather than helping them, they took advantage of their weakened situations. Now it's important to understand that in verse 4 it doesn't mean they literally trampled upon the people, uh, but they may have certainly killed them through utilizing their social status to obtain some form of resources through the poor and destitute. At the very least, they killed the very life they had by selling them into slavery. And they were no longer free people. In verse 5, it's once more important for us to understand the culture of the day. These people ask the question that, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? Kind of a weird question in our culture. We're like, why does it matter where the moon's positioned to sell grain? It doesn't really make much sense. But in their day and age, um, we see that this is a festival. They had a festival that was called the Festival of the New Moon. It was very similar to the Sabbath. It was a time they took aside a whole day that they may worship the Lord. And so... Um, excuse me, uh, 
And so they would use this situation, this time to worship the Lord, but they were showing up physically still in this moment. But we see as they're questioning, you know, when can we be done with this thing that we may go sell our grain, that they're, they're, they're still thinking of themselves. They're focused on what is in their hearts and their desires rather than the worship of God himself. And so once more we see this, people are inclined to think about their desires rather than worship God. Um, but not only were these people focused on their own desires to worship God, they were also dealing immorally. They were using false scales to turn a greater profit. And what they would use, and I'll use pounds instead of ephah and, um, and the like to, to get a better understanding, but let's say, for example, they were using, uh, somebody wanted some, some apples, right? And so they put it on a scale, and their scales would work where they would put weights on the other side to see when it would balance. So that instead of having you know, a three-pound weight with a number three, they would have a three-pound weight with a number five. So they would represent five pounds instead of three pounds. So it looked like it was actually more weight than it, what it was. And so they were getting more money uh, from stuff like that. They're also selling the chaff of the wheat within the wheat itself. The chaff is just the outer shell. You can't use it for baking or anything like that. But it looks very similar. So when it's all together, they're putting the chaff in there as well to get less of the wheat uh, in the sale. So they're making profits immorally. They're, they're lying to the people. They're just, they're all about getting more money in any way possible. Uh, so they had very deceitful dealings in selling. And, and you also see the most heartbreaking aspect of all this is, is the dealing and selling and trading of people. And so they were given to money, over to money and profit so much that they had a price on a human being. And it just boggles my mind that, that they could do such a thing or that people have done such a thing in the past. Uh, and, but we see that price, sadly, uh, there's no price you can put on a human being, but their price was just pretty much anything. Some silver and even just a pair of sandals for the life of a human being. So they would, ta- they would obtain whatever amount possible, even for the life of a human being. You know, they saw a new pair of sandals they wanted, they say, I got a guy here, you know, you can have them if you want, if I can have your sandals, and they would, they'd, they'd deal like that. It's just so sad. Um, and so you can imagine how this made God feel. You know, you think of people who were created in his very own image, sold for pennies on the dollar, and the very nation of Israel that he called up out of the world to be an example to other nations is now dabbling in idol worship and partaking in human trafficking. Uh, they're certainly not being a salt and light to the world around them. In fact, in many areas, they were actually worse than the pagan nations surrounding them. But in the midst of all of this, they would still partake in all the festivals and the sacrifices and the Sabbath. And on the outside, they looked like they were a righteous people and a holy people. In the public settings, they'd come forth and act as if they were worshiping God, act as if they were giving him their all. But in reality, outside of those moments, there was nothing in their life that would represent godly attitude. Uh, it was very similar. It reminds me of the, uh, the, the place, spiritually speaking, as the Pharisees were of Jesus' day. And if you remember, Jesus spoke of them in Matthew 15, verse 8, when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's the case with the Israelites here in the book of Amos. They worshipped him with their lips, but their hearts were nowhere near the Lord. And so we must understand that our actions do not always tell the, in the entire story of our hearts. And we may be able to fool people, people surrounding us, of, of, into thinking that we're living a life exemplary of Christ. But if our heart has the wrong posture, it's important to understand that God will know. Right? So uh, you think of a, you know, a guy like Jonah, right? You try to hide from God, which is, you kind of think of it as kind of funny. Um, but God knew where he was at all times. And uh, obviously he suffered for that. 
And I always wondered, it's totally random off subject, but I always wondered if uh, after that time that Jonah went to Nineveh, if uh, he was afraid of going towards the ocean ever again. You know, <laughs> if he had to, take a, had to take a boat and God just, you know, every now and then would bring a big fish up by the boat and say, hey, I'm still here. You know, <laughs> just, just to freak him out a little bit. Maybe not, but maybe that's why I'm not God, because I, <laughs> I would be, be kind of mean like that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, anyway, totally random, off subject. <laughs> <laughs> but it's important to understand, guys, that we cannot fool God. Right? He knows our hearts. He knows. He even knows our hearts more than we do. Uh, he knows the very innermost being of our hearts' desires and longings. It's very similar too uh, to uh, when Samuel was looking for the next king of Israel, right? And he thought he found the right man. He told him to go to the lineage. It was going to come from the lineage of a man named Jesse. One of his sons will be the next king of Israel. And of course, he sees the oldest son, and he, you know he plays the part. He's very strong and, and good looking, a strong jawline. Just looks the part of the king. He seems like a leader. And God says, "No, that's not that's not the king." And he keeps going down through all of the brothers, you know, and they kind of get younger and a little bit weaker, you know. And and uh, Samuel's like, "What's going on? Like these." Uh, you go, do you have anybody else, Jesse? And he goes, yeah, I got a, like, my youngest son is out in the field. You know, he's just a young boy. You don't need to worry about him. And Samuel says, bring him here. We need to, you know, God has said, none of your sons here are the next king. And he sees David, you know, he's just a scrawny young kid that's tending sheep in the field, you know, and, uh, and God says, this is, this is the next king of Israel. And he tells Samuel, he explains to him, he says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the hearts and if you remember later when David is king he said God himself says this is a man after my own heart he saw his hearts and to that you know and then to be fair David was far from perfect but he had a heart that was willing uh, and, f- and fully devoted to God even though he did have his shortcomings but it's important to understand guys that God is looking upon our hearts today And the question arises that when he does look upon our hearts, what does he see when he looks at yours? Is it one of outward obedience or is your heart fully rendered to God? And I would hope and pray and challenge you guys to internally uh, look upon that question in your own hearts and ask God to reveal your heart to you. Uh, And next we see uh, the promised judgment of the Israelites beginning in verse 7. We're going to read the rest of the chapter here and we'll break it down. Uh, in verse 7, the, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts in the morning and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I'll make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In the day, the lovely in that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall not or shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, and say, "As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall, and never rise again." So there's a lot here to, to, to break down, but we're going to try to break this down verse by verse. Uh, in verse 7, it says that the Lord swears by the pride of Jacob. Uh, now according... Oh, thank you. <laughs> do, I, do I sound parched? <laughs> 
I'm a little under the weather. I appreciate it. And that's why he isn't on the advisory board. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take an egg McMuffin. Okay. As well. <laughs> just, just kidding, Brad. Thank you. <laughs> totally kidding. I appreciate that. Um, but it says that the Lord swears by the pride of Jacob. Uh, scholarly debate surrounds this phrase. It could refer to the land of Israel, as we see in Psalm 47, as a prized possession, or to the city of Samaria as a fortified power, as we saw in Amos chapter 6. But it seems best, however, to interpret the, that phrase, the pride of Jacob, as a reference to God himself. And so what we see is the Lord is swearing by himself that he will never forget their deeds. Now in verse 8, Amos likens God's judgment to that of the annual flooding of the Nile River. Uh, back in this, this time, uh, I don't know if it happens as often now, but back in this time the Nile used to flood regularly between uh, the months of June and September every year. And God is essentially saying that his coming judgment is inevitable, just like the annual flooding of the Nile River. Also, like the flooding, God's judgment will cover everything and leave destruction in its wake. Uh, the flooding of the Nile River was very destructive, especially in the, in the, when it got really high in certain years. Now reading verses 9 and 10 again, it says, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts in the morning and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And I'll make it look like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. So we see here in verses 9 and 10 is a complete reversal of fortunes among the people. The sun will hide its face and Israel will be covered in darkness. Their pagan festivals, which they saw as lively accounts and, and fun, and, uh, but it says that they would be turned into mourning. Their upbeat singing would be turned into lamentation, which is um, the opposite. It's, it's, kind of, it's a downcast, questioning, um, a mourning type of song. And uh, it says every good thing in their eyes would be turned upside down in hopes that their eyes would be opened. But at this point, they're, they're without hope. God has given a warning after warning after warning, and now it's just a coming judgment regardless of what happens at this point forward. <clears throat> the sackcloth and the shaving of one's head were, were two outward displays of mourning that were very common in ancient Israelite culture. They would put upon themselves a sackcloth. Oftentimes they would shave their head, and when people saw them, they would know that they were mourning. But it says that every person would do this. It would be so bad that every single person would be mourning in such a way. But this is, in my opinion, it's not even the worst of their judgment. Uh, that comes in verses 11 through 14. And again, we'll read this together. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the words of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria as, and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. <clears throat> in the conclusion of Amos 8, we are told that there's going to be a famine in the land. And if you recall back several chapters, there was a famine in the land. Um, but however, this famine is a little bit different. That famine happened on the occurrence of, uh, there was a plague of locusts that just pretty much ate everything, all of their crops and um, their storehouses were, were turned to mold. And uh, so they were without food. But this famine is a little bit different from a typical famine. 
And we saw also that 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 previous famine had no bearing on them spiritually. It didn't change their ways. They didn't turn back to God. They never never relented from their idol worship. They could just continue to do what they did. It did not bring them back to God. And so now the Lord promises a famine once more. But again, it's not of grain or of water, but it's of the word of God. And so this is the final and most difficult reversal of all, in my opinion. We see light turns to darkness. We see joy turns to sadness. um, All these different things. But now, they had the word of the Lord, but now they will not have the word of the Lord. You have to recall, I mean, they have it. Currently, right now, at this moment, they have the word of the Lord. They had it through the law, and and now they had it through the prophets. The prophets were speaking the words of the Lord, but they weren't listening They continue to follow after idols and completely ignore God's word when they had it. And so now God promises a day when they will seek after his word. They'll have a thirst for his word. When it says that the lovely virgins and the young man, it's saying even the strongest um, of the individuals will faint for thirst. They'll be so thirsty for it, but they will not find it. So there's going to be a day where they they will not have the word of the Lord. It's going to be silence. And can you imagine... You know, in your own spiritual life, something like that, where there's just silence from the Lord, you finally, they finally realize, like, we need God's word. You know, they have all the other comforts in the world, they need God's word, and they're seeking after it, and they're praying out and crying out to him, but all they hear back in response is silence. He's no longer talking and speaking to them. And I believe there's some places today, right now, that there's a famine for the word of the Lord. And I think of America especially, right? People have bread, they have the water, they have all the comforts in life that they could need and want. But they're missing, and what they're really longing for is the word of the Lord, the word of God. <clears throat> I could even say there's probably many in churches today even that would say the water's great, the bread is good, but where is the word? We need the word of the Lord. And so what is it going to take for us as a nation to get to a place where we are thirsty and hungry for the word of God? And my hope and my prayer this morning is that you who are here thirst for God's word, that you are hungry for it, that you are not satisfied without it. My prayer is also that you're being filled with God's word while you're here at City on a Hill and that you walk out of these doors every Sunday morning full of the word of God and a desire to know God and walk with him and have fellowship with him. But sadly, there's many places where there's just, this just isn't taking place. And you notice in verse 11, it's a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. We've been going on uh, three and a half years now at City on a Hill. It's pretty amazing to think about how fast it's gone by and how young we still are in the same sense. And uh, I'm blown away by God's grace and his mercy and his blessing upon our church. You know, we couldn't afford a building like this and God provided it through the uh, kindness and blessing of another ministry. And uh, But I want to share with you guys for a moment, this is... Um, just an aspect of pastoring that I was not ready for or uh, or even expecting. Um, I've shared my story. For those of you who don't know, I was I felt the calling upon my life. It's probably been seven years now. Um, God told me to start a church. <laughs> 
kind of a, you know, like, okay, that's funny. <laughs> Try again. Uh, let's roll that dice one more time. And, uh, and God said, no, I want you to start a church. I said, how do you even do that? Is there like a book, you know, <laughs> starting a church for dummies? Uh, you know, it's, every, every church I've known, even the, you know, non-denominational ones have already been established for years and years. And so, it's like, how do you do that? And, and of course, I won't go into all the details, but God brought into my life through family, Pastor Steve, and uh, he shared his vision of the church after I shared mine, and they were verbatim. I mean, he showed me the he showed me the papers of their constitution, and it was pretty much exactly what I just told him, what God's placed on my heart. And uh, so we spent months praying together, and uh, how we go about this. And so that's how we became affiliated with City on a Hill Community Church out of Olivet. Um, but anyway, um, that's that's not all part of the story, but. Uh, you know, going into it, you know, God called me to be a pastor. You just don't know <laughs> all the expectations or the um, the workings of what a pastor does. And so I thought it was, you know, I, of course I was nervous and, and felt wholly under-equipped for what God was calling me to do. But there was times where I thought, you know, this is this is a great calling. You know, I'm going to be in God's Word constantly. I'm going to be in prayer constantly in fellowship with the Lord. You know, this is my whole job and all the preaching. It entails being in God's Word and in His presence. This is going to be great. But over time, I've found out that there is a huge, huge difference from preparing to preach God's word and hearing God's word. And uh, I spent hours this week, and I don't say, guys, I'm not saying any of this to, to brag or say, look at me, but I'm just explaining the situation and how this works. But I spent hours uh, this week just pouring over chapter 8 of Amos. You know, I read it over and over again countless times, frontwards, backwards. Um, you know, I'd studied commentaries on the passages. I did word studies into the ancient Hebrew literature. I did, I did um, studies into the ancient Hebrew culture. And these are all things I love to do. I'm kind of a nerd that way. I love going into this kind of stuff and studying it and trying to understand it more. But it's not the same as hearing God's word. And I know that makes sound weird because uh, you're constantly in his word, but it's totally different. And of course, when I say hearing God's word, I don't, I don't just mean it audibly spoken. That's a great thing. Um, I, I love to hear it audibly spoken, but that's not what I mean. What I mean by hearing from God, it, it, or hearing his word, is to hear from God, be in communion with him, a one-on-one -on -one time, an intimate moment, being fed his word. And as a pastor, uh, before my trip, uh, I, I went to my parents for Thanksgiving with my family. They live in Chicago area for Thanksgiving. And uh, before I went over there, um, I hadn't sat in a church service for over four months. I hadn't actually sat down and heard a message spoken in four months. And so I had, a, I had a class assignment and it required me to attend a church service. And of course being a pastor it's kind of difficult to attend a church service on Sunday with, you know, not being here and stuff. <laughs> so I had to find a, a time where it would work and it just happened to work out. It was the day before Thanksgiving. They had a Thanksgiving special service at this church about, you know, five miles from my parents' house. And um, I just remember uh, how excited I was to attend this service. Um, Kind of all day, I was just kind of watching the clock and just kind of waiting. For one, I didn't want to be late, <laughs> and I had an assignment due that night. But also, I was just so excited to, to be a part of a, of a service. Um, but it wasn't until I sat down, this was after the worship, and the worship there was incredible. Um, and I opened my Bible, I clicked my pen, I was ready for the message. But I realized in that moment how parched I was. I was just, I was just so thirsty, and I was so hungry for God's word. And it was in that moment, it was just, it was incredible. It was a very, it was a, it was a wonderful message. It was, it was rather short because it was one of those holiday special messages, but um, 
it was in that moment, though, as he began to read the word of the Lord, that it was just like a wave of water crashing over my soul. And it was just so refreshing and so uplifting to be fed. And as I thought back even more, it was four months, you know, had passed since I'd sat and listened to a message. But it was over a year in which I wasn't a part of the message at all. I wasn't a part of the service in any situation. I just got to come in, worship with fellow believers, sit down and hear the word of the Lord. Uh, And it was just so, so refreshing. And I just, I didn't even realize it until I was there. But it made me realize that although... As a pastor, I'm in God's word constantly uh, that I could still be in a famine to hear his word and to hear his voice. And I'm not speaking as your pastor right now. I'm, kinda, I'm just speaking as Matt <laughs> for a moment. But uh, in that moment, this made me realize something and I just want to share it with you guys is, is make time for God's word. Make time for it. Spend time in scripture. Let it pour over your heart. Let it pour over your soul. Soak it in. And make it a priority to be in his presence daily. Pray to the Lord. Lay your requests before the throne of grace. But in that moment also listen to his voice. Don't make it a, don't make it a, a monologue. It's a dialogue between you and God. Let him speak to you as well. And don't take any of it for granted. Also don't throw around excuses like I don't understand it. I don't have enough time. Because I've been there and I've said those things. But all of us have enough time. And no matter how busy our schedule is, we have enough time for God. And if you think you don't, you need to make enough time for Him. And God will also speak to you through His Word. Whether you have a difficult time understanding it or not, He will speak to you. I can promise you that. And if you do have a difficult time, don't make that an excuse. Right? Utilize that time to, to dig deeper. Go further. Try to understand what it means. Don't let it pull you away or hold you back from reading God's Word. But I promise you that he will reveal himself to you through his word. And my prayer is, guys, that you would never leave this place in a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. And my prayer is that city on a hill, whether I'm here or, or not, whether it's another pastor in the future, this will always be a place where the word of God goes forth, and that you are fed and encouraged and strengthened in your walk with the Lord. My prayer also is that God would help us in our country and in our churches here. You know, could you imagine what it would be like if every single church in America, every single pulpit was filled with a pastor who preached faithfully from the word of the Lord? You know, I think there's, there's I'm not going to say, point out mega churches by name, but there are many around here that messages are filled with fluff, right? They water it down so that it, it's palpable to the, to the masses. It's a simple message that God loves them. While that's true, they forget about the part of God's judgment and uh, his desire for our obedience. Um, But I just think, man, if these these churches, if every church would just preach uh, through the word of God faithfully, allowing the spirit to anoint them, you know, and just preach the truth of the word and the love of his word, you know, what kind of nation would we have? What kind of nation would this be? And if we had people who realized their thirst, you know, I didn't even realize my thirst for his word as a pastor, but if we could just have an awakening where people realize their hunger and thirst for the word of the Lord, how that could change this nation too. And lastly, my prayer is to, that God would raise up an army of people willing and ready to feed hungry souls the word of the Lord. 
you know, that each generation there'd come up more and more faithful people who would preach God's word. And we're coming to a point in our nation now where, um, you know, this lukewarm Christianity just won't hold it. You know, there's, there's opposing sides now. There's a line in the sand that's growing deeper and deeper, and you have to be on one side or the other at this point of where you stand. And so my prayer this morning for all of you is that you never take for granted the word of the Lord. The nation of Israel had the word of God, right? They had it before them whenever they wanted it. They had the Lord speaking directly to them through prophets. And they took it for granted. They ignored it. It was given to them faithfully through the law, through the prophets, and they just continued to ignore it. They didn't have time for God's word, right? They were doing their own thing. They had, <laughs> they had money to make. They had other gods to worship, including themselves. But it wasn't until the word of the Lord went silent that they hungered for it. It reminds me, I couldn't, I wish I could find it. I, I looked it up in Google in several different ways. I couldn't find it. There was this book my mom used to read me as a kid. I usually, it was probably, you'll see, it was usually after I probably complained that I wish I had a better mom or something. <laughs> She's like, hey, let me read you this book, you know, and she'd open it up, and it was about this teacher that had all these snot-nosed third-grade kids that just were just terrible. They wouldn't listen to her. They complained when she would give them assignments and try to teach them things, and this teacher's the worst, and so she finally has it. She goes, okay. So she goes home one night. And she decides uh, that she's not going to come in as teacher anymore, so she becomes a substitute teacher, and she changes her appearance. She puts on all this makeup. She looks really creepy. I remember as a kid, I used to be kind of scared of this teacher, this substitute teacher, and she wears all black, and she walks in, and the kids are just like, what the heck? And she goes, your teacher's sick. I'm going to be your substitute teacher for a while. And she's just, I mean, she lays down the hammer. She's very strict. Um, and all these kids are like, man, I wish our other teacher was back. You know, this teacher's awful. And uh, so this goes on for about a week, and then... Uh, she shows back up as herself, and the kids are all excited. Thank God you're back, you know. <laughs> that other teacher was the worst. Like I said, my mom probably showed this to me after I was complaining about <laughs> my mom. So, yeah, you could have it worse, Matt. <laughs> but it reminds me a little bit of the nation of Israel in our story this morning, in our passages. Right? They had, they had it good. They had, they had the word of the Lord. And God said, you know what? You're not going to listen to it? Fine. You know, you're not going to hear from me anymore. It's gone. But unfortunately, like the story my mom read me, um, you know, he didn't come back. The word of the Lord was silence as they went into captivity. And so my prayer, guys, let's not let it get to that point in, in our lives individually, but also collectively as a nation. You know, God has blessed us with his word here. He's blessed us with the freedom to read his word without oppression. You know, and let's not turn from it, but instead let's be filled <laughs> with his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you today, Lord. And uh, if we've taken for granted your word, God, I just pray that we would not do so any longer. We thank you that you have blessed us with it, that you speak to us through it, that we draw closer to you from it. We thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us as we're still near the holiday season. God, I just thank you that you are con con just constantly, consistently in pursuit of our hearts, Lord. We turn from you and we, we strive after these desires of the flesh, Lord, and yet you still pursue us. We thank you for that. And I just ask, God, that you would not be silent among your people here in the nation of America and, and around the world, that we would hear your word. 
constantly, that we would be filled with your word, that we'd have a thirst and a hunger for your word, and that you would quench that thirst and fill our, fill our hunger, Lord. We thank you again for the opportunity we have. We thank you for this church, for this community, Father. I ask that we would have opportunities to be salt and light in this world, and that we could draw people to you, that we'd just be reflections of your light to the world around us. In your name we pray. Amen.